Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Alan, welcome. Thank you. So, um, Alan Gilbert is joining me. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and we're going to talk about software engineering. We're going to talk about product, and we're just going to sort of run the, the that spectrum. And Alan's been involved in, in building teams and products, some very well-known in Columbus, certainly, and, and in the region and nationally. So, Alan, give us a little bit of a sense of how did you get into this engineering racket and a little bit about your background and then a little bit about what you're doing now. Well, I've been doing this for a long time. I guess it started when I was probably around eight years old and ripping apart the dishwasher and my parents said, okay, you're going to be an engineer. I, uh, I guess more sort of recent history is I worked for 16 years at a company called Codonics up in Cleveland. It was a medical device company and we made uh, peripheral devices for radiology in the operating room and um, started networking around. Uh, I knew 16 years was a long time. It was time to do something new and fresh and I'd met a lot of people in the startup ecosystem and I realized they were having way more fun than I was. And so I started networking amongst that crowd. Uh, ended up um, meeting uh, a guy, can I drop a name, uh, Robert Hedda. Oh, uh, sure. At a um, IT Martini event in Cleveland. And he introduced me to Matt Scanlon to cover my meds. And that really, I really clicked with the people there. And so I moved down to Columbus and I was there for five years and really found the, the culture and the environment that, that I was looking for. That was a great ride. And um, recently, I uh, started talking to Matt's brother, Pete, who is the CEO of Orange Barrel Media. And one thing led to another. Um, started with a mountain bike ride and ended with me moving over there to run engineering there. So be careful who you mountain bike ride with is, is the right, moral of that right. story. It may be career altering. Right. You, you, you may change addresses and desks um, in the very near, future, very near future. Yes. Yes. For uh, sure. So Robert is... is I'm not sure there's a better product sort of engineering um, connector in probably the Midwest than Robert Hatta at this point, right? Yeah. That's his yeah. role at Drive. He's the partner around talent and, and, and talent sourcing yeah. for their companies. At the time, he was at uh, Jumpstart in Cleveland okay. and had a similar role there. And, and Cover My Mez was one of the Jumpstart companies. Gotcha. Yeah. And he's a Cleveland guy because he was with, with TAC uh, before Jumpstart, I think. Yeah. And before so, that, he was, I think, with Apple for a time, if I have my facts straight. Yeah. So now we've just dissected Robert's career. <laughs> we probably got it all wrong, so he's probably we're probably going to hear from him. Like, no, that's completely out of order. And don't forget about this other thing, cool thing that I did. <laughs> so let's jump into the engineering stuff first. Sure, uh, sure. And, and then we'll sort of uh, morph that in, into product. So you've been part of building some successful products, mostly with an engineering focus, What's the most important thing that you learned from other disciplines and crafts as part of building those products, either from UX people or UI people or sort of process people, right? What, what did you learn the most that you think you sort of carry with you now as you build new products and, and build new teams to build new products? You mean from, from an engineering perspective? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think one of the most important things is that um, – no product is perfect. Products have to evolve. And that kind of gets into a modern way of thinking, an agile way of thinking. So it's important to experiment a lot. It's important to get feedback. It's important to validate your ideas, particularly when you're creating something new. But by the same token, um, there are times when you can kind of disappear into the lab and emerge with something that is very successful if it's not a brand new thing. If it's like the second or third time through and it's a cheaper, faster, smaller version of something that, that's already proven. And so when I hear people talk you know, about the, um, the agile process, I believe that's uh, absolutely true in, in the, the lean product development process. But there are exceptions to the rule also 
when you're on your nth iteration of a product and just trying to build uh, a version where you can get into a new market because you can lower the cost or shrink the size or, or otherwise penetrate a market with a proven application that uh, is locked out for, for some reason. Yeah, it actually reminds me of a session that I did at the Lyft product conference that you were at last October, I think is when the, the, that conference happened here. And someone asked me, because because I talk a lot about validation and and making sure that, that you're you're working iteratively with customers and getting and staying close to customers and users. And someone s- said, well, you know, what about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, right? And I don't think that most of us are that visionary is, is my typical answer to that. But if you look at Steve Jobs and you look at Apple, too, many of their products were evolutions on things that already existed, but they did it better. Right, right, right. right. And the one example I thought of as you're asking me the question uh, goes back to, I mentioned Codonics. We made a printer for radiology that was smaller. Uh, It did more. It was less expensive. And I'm pretty sure they're still shipping it today. And we shipped it originally in 2002. So it's been very successful. And in that case, we kind of locked ourselves in a lab and said, okay, this is something like the fifth generation of this type of product. And we already know what people want because we've done the earlier generations. Um, We just need to re-engineer it to penetrate new markets. Yeah. So what tenants of engineering and and product development, if you will, do you hold sacred? What what things are not optional? What principles absolutely have to be part of the process in your mind? Well, I'd say number one is that you need to be passionate uh, about what you're doing. So engineering, uh, engineering is problem solving. And to be successful in a product domain, you really need to have your eye on a ball that you're, you're passionate about. Is it, uh, I think uh, maybe another way of putting that is that you need to solve a problem that you're experiencing personally. So I think the most successful products, you talked about Steve Jobs, the iPod was people at Apple solving a problem that they felt personally as they wanted a more convenient way to, to listen to music. So I think that's definitely um, a big one. Another one that I find really interesting, we're talking about engineering, is the debate over whether software development is engineering or not. And uh, maybe it's because I work a lot in the software engineering domain, but I, I firmly believe that software development is engineering. Uh, it's, just, it's just different. It's a different medium. And I think it needs to be looked at a little bit differently. Software has an advantage in that it's a lot more flexible and you can correct your mistakes more easily. If I'm going to pay $100,000 for tooling to make some piece of plastic, and I screw it up, it's not very forgiving. Whereas software is a lot more forgiving, but by the same token, it's a hell of a lot more complex. And um, you need to be more deliberate to not create something so complex that it's gonna have undiscoverable flaws. So I think that the freedom that software gives you is a double-edged sword because you can create pretty much anything but you could also screw things up really, really bad. So is one of the real challenges of software engineering uh, taking something that maybe is a complex problem and then thereby could have a complex solution and complex a complex product and pr- complex code around it and then finding a way to make that simple and elegant? Right, right. That's exactly it, is, is you need to be very mindful to make it simple and elegant, both from a product standpoint, because successful products these days are usually simple and elegant and not overly complex, but also it's tempting to be overly clever and overly complex in software because it's so easy to do and it's basically free and you can end up with a product that uh, is not reliable or in the worst case in a medical application or an aerospace application dangerous yeah and not scalable and all those kinds of things that we sort of talk about related to software products right of of ultimately being 
exponential, right? Software we talk about as being exponential, but it's not exponential if you, if you've overcomplicated it, right? Because then you're pro- there are probably cracks somewhere. You just have you just don't find them until you want to begin to scale and get that exponentiality out of it. Yeah, yeah, it's inherently less controlled, less bounded, uh, and therefore you need to be more disciplined to not create something that is overly complex to the point that it's going to not be a solidly produced piece of work. So how do you, how do you get that discipline and how do successful engineering teams and product teams sort of enforce that discipline to not overcomplicate it at a minimum, but to simplify as the objective ultimately? Well, I think uh, some successful uh, approaches that I've seen are um, a lot of its mindset. I love the mindset that um, boring is better. So don't um, go overboard in doing things that are clever or that are maybe self-gratifying. And uh, part of it is working with other people on your team. Uh, I love the concept of pair programming. Working together tends to, if, if someone's gonna ask you questions or someone's going to scrutinize your work as you go, it tends to simplify things because they will point out maybe where um, you're overcomplicating things or uh, taking an approach that is more prone to failure. Or maybe, maybe you're using, maybe you're doing something yourself where there's a proven third party way to do it and discussing your work, pairing with people, having people review your work. You may become aware of something that's out there that's already proven, that's more ubiquitous. And the more you invent yourself, the more likely you're going to make mistakes because you're going to end up with version one of whatever the, the, the thing is that you've created. Yeah, we, I just realized this, and maybe it's been around longer than I realized it. Um, I sort of came across it two years ago, this concept of complexity bias. Yes, th- yes. Th- that we actually don't believe that complex problems can be solved with simple solutions that we think complex has to equal complex. And then so so we don't even look or we don't even pursue the simplest, most elegant solution because we're sort of wired to think, well, this is a really complicated problem, so it only can be solved with a complicated solution. And so this complexity bias, we seem to have enough evidence now that it's actually, it's a real thing and it's not just sort of this made up abstract thing. Do you think there's some substance to that? I think so. I think so. It's, um, it's an interesting um, concept. It makes sense. It makes sense. And I think that um, maybe a, a corollary to that is that um, you need to develop a mindset that simpler solution is a better solution as opposed to being proud of doing something that's complex. Um, I also think a, um, a common phenomenon is that when you really, as an engineer, as somebody who's very intelligent and very skilled, when you get really deep into a problem and you have it in your head, you may lose track of how complex the domain is or how complex your solution is because you really, really understand it. Well, you get in the zone and then you come back and look at it the next day and you're like, I can't remember what I was thinking here. <laughs> uh, so I. I think one common technique is just go back and review your own work and quite often you'll recognize that the solution is too complex and if you can't remember it the next day or the next week, then certainly somebody else working on it is not going to be able to figure out in a month or six months. So what are some keys to building high-performing, successful engineering teams? Well, I think perhaps the most important thing is to define roles. And that, that's one of... Aren't all engineers created equal? No, no, absolutely not. And so that's something that not only creating clear roles, uh, and I, I tend to break the world down into there's jobs and there's roles. And jobs are, it's your job description, it's what you do, it's what defines you, it's what you're evaluated on. A role is something that is less formal, more flexible, may not be full-time. And especially when you start with small teams, I like to just say, what are all the roles we need filled on these teams and who's going to fill those roles? And you try and construct a team with people that have the skill sets that let them play those roles. 
So for instance, at uh, Orange Barrel Media now, uh, the product we're working on is called Ike Smart City. It's a kiosk product and it's a full stack SaaS product essentially in addition to some hardware. And we've been constructing the team trying to identify and fill roles along the whole stack. And as we hire people, we're trying to make sure that they fill a role that we need. And we just turned down somebody who was very talented and very skilled, but their skill set overlapped strongly with two other people on the team that were already filling that role. And we also had another role that was unfilled higher in the stack that was more of a front end role. And we're very careful about who we add the team to make sure that A, we understand the roles that need to be filled, and B, we understand the skill sets of the people who are coming in. And that way we can make sure we, not only do we have the optimal people to fill the roles, but also they have job high job satisfaction. Because if we put them in and we put them into a role that's not a natural fit for what they love to do or what they're good at or what their experience um, has um, made them an expert in, then they're not going to be happy. Give us a sense of some of those roles. So you've like with the Ike product and you've got the role sort of across that, that technical stack for the product. Sure. What are some different roles that make that up? Well, let's start at the bottom of the stack. So we need somebody who is what I call bitsy. Uh, that's more uh, a little bit closer to the hardware, which these days with um, you know, a lot of virtualization, you don't have to be as close to the hardware as you used to be, but there's still things like the OS and how do you deploy software, kind of de- DevOps sort of stuff, database level, logging, monitoring, security. That's kind of the, the bottom of the stack. And then there's people who just like to write um, server-side code. They're not all that interested in the user experience. They're more interested in maybe merging two data sources or hitting some APIs out there, uh, say for like a, a transit schedule or something like that. Uh, and then as you move up the stack, you get people who are much more interested in the user experience and they wanna be in the um, JavaScript or HTML, CSS domain, and then you get all the way up on top of the stack and you've got people who are really into user experience and they're thinking about what's the user trying to accomplish and what's the psychology of the user and how, how they're gonna navigate the user interface and how to make it intuitive. And so those are all the roles that, that we're thinking about and we wanna find somebody who's really good and really passionate about all those different things so that we have a team that is, uh, covers the full spectrum. How would you define a great engineer? What, what makes an engineer great? If, if we look at an engineer and we say, okay, this person in that particular role is high-performing and great, what, is that, what does that look like? Well, I may overuse the word a little bit, but um, a big part of it is passion, passion for what you do. So when we're talking to engineers and thinking about hiring people, we look for, for people who naturally love to build things. They love to solve problems. It's part of who they are. I usually look for uh, people who are doing things outside of work, particularly when we're talking to students. We never are looking at what have you done in your coursework. Everybody does the same coursework. In a student, we're looking for somebody who does hackathons. So if we're talking about a software engineer, like computer science student, we look for people who do hackathons, who like develop their, their mother's uh, website for their little gift card business or something like that. For more seasoned engineers, we're looking for people who maybe have enjoyed mentoring younger engineers, or who have uh, participated in uh, like startup weekend, mentoring startup weekends, or going to startup weekends, and just just they want to. Uh, it, it's not that we want people who can't stop working, but we want people who are so passionate about what they're doing that it, it spills over into their personal lives. In terms of a skilled, talented, uh, professional engineer, we're looking for people who are grown-ups, so who know how to show up at work on time and get along with their teammates. I mean, there's the old adage, you want people who are smart and can get things done, and that, that defines the, the uh, complete person you want to hire. We're a little more broad than that. I'm a little more broad than that in terms of how I evaluate people, but there's definitely the smart part and the get things done part, and part of that is um, getting along with your, your teammates. 
How does engineering and how do you facilitate engineering collaborating with and being a valuable part of, of a product team, right? Where mm-hmm. you, you have UX and you have UI, right? And you, and you have maybe, you know, um, user validation and sort of business uh, uh, analysts sort of in the equation too, right? So if we looked at sort of a multidisciplined product team, how does engineering collaborate and plug into that best in your in your mind? Well, I love the word collaboration. I mean, you have to be part of a team. If you are in product development, you're part of a multidisciplinary team where you've got people who uh, understand the customer, understands the market, uh, understands the application, understands the problem you're trying to solve. You've got engineers who are bringing solutions to bear to solve those problems and they need to collaborate. The engineers have to always have their heads up and their eyes open to understand why. That's my favorite word in product development is why. And engineers, the ones who are successful, always understand what the problem is they're trying to solve and why they're doing what they're doing. And to do that, they need they're not going to be out on the road talking to customers all the time. So you need people who have that customer viewpoint who can collaborate with the engineers and sit down with the engineers. And you need engineers who can sit down and listen to a problem and then conceive of a technical solution to bring to bear to solve that problem. Now, quite often you have a product owner or a product manager that helps bridge that gap. Collaboration is also super important. I talked about all these different roles and the only way that you can get a, a complex system working together and solving a problem is that the different people in the different parts of the stack are able to collaborate to have their parts of the solution coordinate with each other. And so you need to, both at a conceptual level, understand each other and at a more technical level, build interfaces that cleanly uh, allow you to build a more complex system made out of simpler pieces, and that requires collaboration. Another way to look at it is a lot of times great solutions are very complex in their whole, but they're made of simpler pieces. And those simpler pieces can only work together to solve the bigger problem if the pieces are collaborating together. And pieces only collaborate together when the people who designed it are collaborating with each other. Yeah, it's, um, I think collaboration and context are the two biggest C's, right? the team has to be collaborating, but they have to be collaborating around the same context, right? Right, right. And I think you hit upon something that that is an essential ingredient for teams to be highly functioning is context. I like to call it the cognitive vision. They have to have a shared cognitive vision. They need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And if everyone has that shared vision, then you don't need hour-to-hour oversight by a manager to make sure they're working on the right things. They can self-manage because they understand the intent. They understand the problem they're trying to solve. And a good engineering manager or product manager is really good at articulating that mission that, that creates the cognitive vision, that shared vision that everybody has so they know what to do because they have a leader who has allowed everyone to understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Product owner and product manager are, are two terms that are getting tossed around a lot now. Do you think those are the same role? Do you think they're different? And if you think they're different, why do you think they're different? That's a great question. And uh, at my previous company, Cover My Meds, we debated that a lot. And I can tell you what I concluded. I concluded that um, they're different roles. And I look at product manager as being a very proactive and deliberate role. In fact, I I consider product manager to be more of a job. It's full-time. It's a lot of responsibility. I think of it as like the CEO of a product. You pretty much have A to Z responsibility for the success of a product and you have the oversight over over the product, primarily uh, the engineering side, primarily the development side, to make sure that the team is working on the right things. I look as, at the product owner as more of a role. It's a little more reactive than product manager. I 
define the product owner as the customer proxy or the voice of the customer to the team. When the team needs to know what does the customer think, what is the right answer, what's the wrong answer, is this the right thing? Uh, it, when you finish working on a feature and you want somebody to tell you if it meets the customer need and be there representing the customer as if the customer is sitting there, that's the product owner. Now the product manager can be a product owner and I think at a small company, and this goes back to roles, when you have a small company or a small team, you might have three people doing three jobs but playing six or seven or ten roles because you're small and you can't afford to have a full-time person for each role and then as the company gets bigger, maybe those roles evolve into jobs. So I think with a small team or a small company, the product ownership is a role that, that is part of the product manager's job. Yeah, makes total sense. It feels like we are now at a point where not being good at product, otherwise being bad at product, appears to be fatal. That if you, if you don't understand how to be good at product and what a good product process and discipline is, that, that is unrecoverable. It's probably always been that way. We just didn't know what to call it necessarily, right? In the past, I guess we probably would have called it bad design and bad development, but it was really sort of not understanding what a product discipline was and then being bad at product. Do you agree with that? Do you think that being bad at product is now fatal? I think so. I think so. I, I guess it depends what you're doing. So if you're, and I've never done consulting, so I can't speak from personal experience. You can probably, as a consulting company where you're hired to come in and solve very specific problems, you may not need to be good at product, but you can still be good at what you do, and that is still software engineering. But in all likelihood, you're working for somebody who's good at product. Somebody has to be good at product. Somebody has to be good at it, right? Yeah, yeah. so I think uh, if you're a product company, you need to be great at product, especially now as there are better and better products in the world. And it's because the companies that win are becoming really, really good at product. And if you're not really, really good at product and understand what makes a great product, um, you're not going to get very far. Yeah. How do you know at any given point in the life cycle of a product and then at a, as a company what the right size engineering team is? Is it this sort of role to task alignment around the product that sort of that defines that? Or are there other components that drive what the size of the engineering team should be given the life cycle of the product and the company? It's a tricky question, and I think um, it depends what you're trying to accomplish. It depends on the size and stage of the company. It depends on the um, maybe the dynamics of the team. I think if you look at it in terms of team effectiveness, I like the two pizza rule, the Amazon two pizza rule. So if you, if you need more than two pizzas to feed your team, then that team is too big. In my mind, somewhere between six and ten people is probably the maximum size you want on a, on a team. Uh, so if you're talking about an engineering organization, obviously for large projects and large companies, you need more than ten people. In that case, the idea is to take the complex project and complex teams and break it down into something simpler. And that goes back to collaboration. We talked about individual collaboration before. Now we're talking about team collaboration. So one answer is the maximum team size for me should never be larger than around 10 people. And if the product or the project or whatever you're trying to accomplish requires more than that, you need to find a way to break it down and then have those teams collaborate with each other. Then, of course, there's also, when you're a small company and trying to bootstrap a new product, you're going to be limited in your resources in terms of what you can spend on an engineering team. And then if you're building a team, it's also how fast can you hire and how fast can you find the right people. In that case, you need to be really choosy about what you're working on. And it comes down to prioritization. And it comes down to what are the most important things to win now. So you may not be able to have the robustness or let's say the um, sophisticated logging and monitoring that you would like when you have your large user base but that's okay because you don't have your large user base yet you're, you're trying to just get something on the map so uh, while you may want more people and you might want to get more done at first you maybe have limited resources and in that case 
you really got to be choosy and thoughtful and smart about what you're working on so that you can be successful with a smaller team than you would like to have. And are those constraints beneficial sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we didn't have constraints, we would probably do a lot of wasteful things. A friend of mine once said, um, scarcity creates clarity. Yeah, I love that. And I totally agree. And I think it's, it's, it's mostly the reason that enterprises are not very good at sort of innovation and disruption and product by and large. Certainly not as good as, as successful startups, right? They, they identify a problem and then and build a product to solve that problem because the startup is forced to have clarity around who's the target user, who's the, why are they, what problem do they want solved? How much do they value the problem, right? Right. What's the minimum solution, right? All the, all the jargon, right, around startups and startup products is mostly around scarcity and constraints, right? That we're going to be laser focused because we don't have customers as a startup, right? So we have to go prove that we can build something that people actually want, which means we're probably doing it with limited time, limited team, limited money, which then sort of in a weird counterintuitive way actually makes it more likely that we're going to build something they want. Exactly, exactly. It's, it seems like a paradox. Right. But it's really just a matter of working on the right thing and being focused. And I hate to use a colloquialism or a, or a cliche, tired old saying, but work smarter, not harder. In this case, work smarter, not with 100 people. Right. Yeah, and, and sometimes that abundance does not necessarily equal being better at product. And in most cases, or in many cases, I think it can be it can be harmful. As you think about sort of the right way to structure an engineering team, you can structure them, you know, based upon product. They can be cross product. They can be um, sort of role based, as we've talked about a little bit. How do you think about the right way to structure an engineering team, like a cover my meds, where you ultimately got to a point where you're managing and you're working on an evolving and and building lots of new products, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole, and I'm going to work at another whole concept too into this question. This is going to be like the longest question in the history of man. There's this whole build and run thing too, right? So you're, once you have a product, right? Now you're trying to evolve that product while you're trying to build new. And then how does that sort of change how you structure your teams as well around that? Well, first of all, I think this could this question could be a whole podcast. <laughs> I think it In could fact, be. This question, and that's why it was so long. This question could be an MBA degree. Um, boy, we went round and round with this pretty much at every company I've been at, but particularly Cover My Meds. We were always seeking the right answer. And uh, actually, Spotify has written some great blog posts about the way they organized their teams. And I think the bottom line is there's not one good answer. And you can't map strictly along one set of lines, be it disciplinary, so maybe you have all the front-end people on a team and all the back-end people on a team, or along particular modules, so maybe you organize your team to mirror your code, which there's something called Conway's Law that says ultimately your code is going to be organized to mirror your team organization. But that's something we tried is to have our teams organized so that you had experts in certain part of the code that that stayed together. Or you can organize along applications or you can organize along customers. And the fact is you need in some part of the day or some part of the week to be organized along all those lines at one time or another. But you need to kind of create a home base. And then everything else is kind of a mapping function from that to something else. So Cover My Meds, what we ended up doing was biasing ourselves towards the customer that we were serving. So we created verticals, and the verticals aligned themselves along particular customers. That product line was an ecosystem, and there were pharmacists who used it, there were prescribers or doctors who used it, there were health insurance companies who used it, and we organized ourselves along those lines to be able to relate and understand what our team's customers wanted and were trying to accomplish. But by the same token, it was an ecosystem. So everybody needed to work together. So even though the teams were organized 
based on the customer, they needed to find a way to work along the other dimension. So they needed to find a way to work where the, uh, say the database people could work together on a shared database even though they were in separate teams. I think this is where the classic matrix organization comes from. Right. It's old and tired, but it makes sense is that you can't pick one or the other. You need to exist in multiple dimensions simultaneously. But the way you organize yourselves is going to bias you one way or the other. And at Karma Mez, we chose to bias ourselves towards the customers. And that was great at times, and it was painful at other times. And we had to create mechanisms to, to overcome the bias against how the groups weren't organized. Uh, Spotify has some nice concepts where they have um, they have what they call guilds and tribes and these different different types of um, organizations that are less formal uh, that allow maybe people to share best practices even though they're on different teams. Certainly, engineering teams and product teams take on the culture of the organization, but it also seems like engineering teams and product teams develop their own microculture right inside of, of of that team does that develop naturally in in your experience or is that sort of a a managed and sort of manifested culture where the team is is maybe even sort of unconsciously getting to having that team that has a different culture than another team inside of the company just because of the personalities and and the characters and maybe the skill of the people in that? And does it matter ultimately whether engineering teams and, and product teams maybe have different cultures than some other teams? Well, I think that anything that is um, forced is, is not going to work. So whatever you're doing, it has to be organic. I think the ideal situation is certainly engineering teams are going to be different. Engineers are just wired differently. And the rest of the company looks at them and scratches their heads and uh, you know, maybe it's because they like to wear shorts and flip-flops to work in the summer, or maybe because their humor is totally different and they think that salaryman is the funniest thing ever. But the really successful organizations, in my mind, are ones where the engineering culture is kind of a subculture of the company culture. I've been in situations where the engineering culture was completely different than the rest of the company, and it was a disaster. And I likened it to a storm front where the two cultures would meet and they would meet violently and the results would be bad. Uh, I think the successful cultures are where you have an engineering culture where the people can be themselves, but they're within a larger company culture where everybody shares the same values. So when it, goes, when it comes down to the core values, the engineering team lives by those values just like everybody else in the company and the other teams in the company, but it kind of manifests itself a little bit differently. And the engineering team thinks they have a different sense of humor. Um, maybe they watch different TV shows. They um, read different publications. They listen to different uh, podcasts. But at the end of the day, the important values of how you treat people and uh, how you think about a customer and how you deal with adversity binds the different teams together. I also think the mission of the company and the product you're working on and how you feel about what you're doing every day, that's something where there could be a very strong kinship and there should be a very strong kinship between the technical people, the sales people, the product people, the accounting people. I mean, everybody in a very successful company, everybody feels good about the common mission, uh, even though they have subcultures that are more particular to their um, the thing that makes the people in that profession tick. Yeah. How much do you care about systems and tools and processes, um, you know, effectiveness, you know, and facilitating the the the, the collaboration and and the context? Do you think that? tools and systems are a big piece of that or do you think that they're really just they're mostly interchangeable and it's and it's the sort of the intent and the discipline and some of the other things that we've talked about that are more important and the tools and the systems are are a means to an end but don't uh, have quite as critical a role as maybe we give them or we maybe empower them to have. I think the way I look at it is it's not one one versus the other so it's I do think the Perhaps the overriding factor is the intent of process and, uh, processes and tools 
is vitally important and having processes and tools and having the right processes and tools is also vitally important but I don't feel like through all my experience this is the tool for this job and this is the tool for that job and this is the process for this job it really it's more important that you have processes and tools that everybody everybody on the team buys into and feels like it meets the needs of the team than it is to have a specific set of processes or tools so if you look at a scrum board some people some teams use a whiteboard some teams use something like Trello and maybe um, for a team where everybody's local to the same office a whiteboard is the optimal solution and when you have remote people something like Trello is the optimal solution then you've got people who use github and the now bolt-on um, project management uh, extras that that uh, GitHub has for creating a scrum board, um, other other uh, teams like Pivotal. In a way, it really doesn't matter as long as everybody agrees and feels comfortable that that's the right tool for the team at that time. And it could change over time. And the other thing I think is really important is that the the team periodically evaluate the tools and be honest if something is not working. By the same token team should not be afraid to try either tool or process to see if it works uh, and not be afraid to say you know what that didn't work for us let's do something different or let's stop doing that and that's where retrospectives come in retrospectives are great because they if you if you do them correctly and you're honest with yourself well the team is honest with itself it forces you to refine and change over time to, to tweak your processes and tools so that they, they work for the team. How do you get the team to a point? Because I think in, in many cases, Agile and many of the tenants of Agile have um, maybe not delivered on the promise. And it's not because the, the, the process is, is bad or that the, the principles are bad. It's often the execution um, of the, the organization and then the people right mm-hmm. on top of those principles in the process. And so one of the things that, that I think many of us see frequently is people not willing to sort of be vulnerable, people not willing to be sort of transparent, people not willing to be honest, right? And, and to say, right, that, that you know, I've, I've got an impediment here that I need help with or in a retrospective, not being overly protective, right, of, of something that, they didn't, that didn't go well and just being willing to sort of admit this piece didn't go well. Why didn't it go well? How do we prevent it from happening again in the future? How do you get to that sort of culture where people are willing to be vulnerable, transparent, and and egoless as part of the process? Well, you have to have the right people on the team. Uh, and you only need one wrong person on the team to totally screw that up. Right. So at Karma Meds, like a lot of other companies, we created the no a-holes rule. And uh, that is so, so important. Do the a-holes know that they're the a-holes, though? Um, usually not. And, I mean, the trick is not, not hiring those people in the first place. Right. Um, I had... Um, but, we all, but we've all made that mistake, right, where we, we bring sure. somebody into the team that we then realize mm-hmm. six weeks into it or however long that, oh, this was sort of a miss, but now you have somebody in the team that has become a little bit toxic. Yeah. Well, that's when the manager has to do the hard part of their job and fix a hiring mistake. And that's a very difficult thing to do, but it's the right thing to do as a leader. It goes back to hiring the right people, and a lot of that goes back to um, the roles on the team and putting people in the right roles. Uh, A lot of it is understanding the psyche of the team and the psychology of the team. Uh, I can think of uh, a number of things that I've done over the years. One of them is giving the team a strong say in who you hire. So the interview process should be very collaborative. And that doesn't mean that any one person on the team can veto a hire at the end of the day. That's the manager's decision as to who you hire and who you don't hire. But everybody on the team should have a say and you should respect everybody's opinion. And if somebody has a strong concern, you better well vet it out. And at the end of the day, you may decide that you need to respectfully disagree with that person and explain to them 
respectfully why you value their or their opinion, why you want to hear their opinion again and again. And please don't be shy about expressing your opinion because I chose to not go along those lines this time, but still allowing the team to have a, a say-so. Teams that, that work together over time just get good at, at working together. Sometimes uh, an agile coach helps. A really good agile coach will in a very gentle way nudge the team in the right direction. And the best coaches I've seen are very passive and it almost looks like they're not doing much. But the difference between them working with the team and not working with the team is night and day. Mm-hmm. It's getting the individual to own the solution, right? And I think that's sort of what most good coaches do in any good con. Yeah, context, yeah, right? yeah. A good coach does not give you the solution. A good coach helps you find the solution. A good a good coach is Socratic. Right. Will just ask you questions, and as you answer the questions, you solve your own problem. Also, I think an egoless leader is essential. A servant leader, someone who is looking to figure out a way to serve their team, to make their team better, and the team is the team's success is what is important, and not their success. So platforms are sort of all the rage. And would you describe the Cover My Meds ecosystem and, and product mix as a platform? Ultimately, how, how would you define a, a platform? Um, help, help me understand. I'm supposed to be asking the questions. Um, <laughs> what you're getting? At. I guess a platform, in my mind, is a maybe an amalgamation of products that s- serve a common purpose, but are used by many different stakeholders. Yeah. That yeah. that don't necess- that all get benefit from all of the stakeholders being in this network effect. Right. 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 But. They're all using the platform in very different ways. I think it's rare for something to start life as a platform. Right. Maybe the telephone is like the canonical example. Like it's worthless, absolutely worthless for one person to have one phone. As soon as your friend has a phone, it's more valuable. As soon as your common friend has a phone and can talk to the two original phone holders... Um, now it's even more beneficial. So that's, I mean, that's the classic network effect. Right. Uh, I don't know that uh, many products start start off that way. Like Cover My Meds, for instance, um, started off as, um, hey, here's a tool that you can use to uh, create prior authorization forms online. There was some network effect in mind at the beginning, but it really was a product, not a platform. But as the services for um, both uh, physicians and pharmacies expanded and as it went from insurance companies simply receive faxes to insurance companies now have an electronic connection that saves them a bunch of money and work by having connections that directly integrate into their back end and as Carmen Meds made more tools for the insurance side of things and created more integrations on the pharmacy side, more integrations on the prescriber side, it more from becoming a, I would say, a product with a network effect to a platform. What would you say Ike is at Orange Barrel? Is Ike a product, a platform, somewhere in between right now? Um, we, we think of it right off the bat as a platform, but maybe for, for a little bit different reason. And, and, and what I mean by that is while there is some network effect, where one city has it, it benefits from the innovations and ideas from another city, and ultimately we're going to be creating maybe um, communication and sharing of data or sharing of, um, of uh, maybe some social applications across cities. By and large, it's uh, contained to, uh, from, from the city's perspective, it's about their city. The reason I say it's a platform is because it can do a lot of different things. So it is a product in the sense that it's a piece of hardware. It's like a eight foot iPhone that you stick in the sidewalk and it has applications on it. But those applications can um, serve many different purposes. It's not unlike an iPhone. There's a good metaphor here to, a, to an iPhone or, or a, a smartphone 
where everybody's smartphone is different. A smartphone is a platform. So we're all using the same or one of two major OSs, but we all have a different set of applications and we use it slightly differently for different things. So it's a platform in so much as it spurs creativity to create these different applications and it's a communication platform and it's a productivity platform, but for everybody it manifests itself in a different way. And that's very similar to to the Ike Smart City platform. It's, uh, in a broad sense, it's a digital portal into a city. It is a way for cities to provide a friendly interface and portal to everything that city has to offer. So restaurants, uh, shopping, uh, there's this whole class of things that is like businesses. And then there's another class of things that's like city services that uh, are important to everybody, like uh, where's the police station, or um, how do I, where do I go to get a dog license, or how do I report some graffiti on the building across the street, and then it's got a whole other set of applications that's aimed towards economically challenged people. So uh, we've got an application that helps people find homeless shelters, or we have an application that helps people find a job. There's a job board. There's another application that provides uh, links or, or directions to maybe a community center that has a workshop today on how to write a resume or how to interview. Uh, so it's a platform in so much as there's different applications on it now, but it's, it's evolving and as cities deploy them, much like app stores have an ecosystem, a platform for developers to develop applications, this is going to be an ecosystem or a platform for cities to provide services or directories to services or information that helps people reach these services and communicate with the city in both directions. So people can give feedback to the city or the city can communicate events to, to visitors or residents. So it's a platform in the sense that it's it's an ecosystem where a lot of different things are going to organically happen. It's going to do things in three or four years that we're not even thinking of today. Are you ultimately going to open it up for others to um, write applications and write services for the platform? That's a great question. Something like that, I don't know that we're going to have it like a true open app store, but uh, for instance, one thing I envision is maybe a city might have a hackathon where they have people develop social services applications for for the Ike platform and the winning application will be installed and featured on every kiosk in the city, something like that. So I do think that there will be some sort of uh, open uh, ability for people to write applications and all the smart people out there just like the App Store and all the developers that, that are out there to create things that the uh, inventor and deployer of the platform didn't necessarily envision. Uh, well, this has been a great conversation around engineering and products, and we've covered a lot of things, so I appreciate you taking the time to do it. And we will be back with the next episode in a couple of weeks. So thanks for listening. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHNet to learn more.